0: Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have been hitherto overlooked. So we're going to research them until the cows come home, and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing, and we're the ones to do it. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 6 of season 2 of Apocryphal Australia. My name is Michael Pryor.
1: And my name is Stephen Higgins.
0: Now Stephen, before we get into today's grab bag of stories, I'd like to continue showing our loyal listeners around Apocryphal Australia headquarters. And I'd like, first of all, to bring to the attention of the listening audience this stapler that I'm holding up close to the microphone. It might look like an ordinary piece of office kit, but it was sent in by one of our correspondents who swears it was the very same stapler that was used by former Chief Justice Waldo Hemming in compiling his findings after his long and exhaustive inquiry into the Queensland peanut industry in 1938. And next to it is the hole punch, which was used to help assemble the damning indictment against Tito McGeorge, the Sydney guinea pig juggler, in 1959. Still works a treat. And lastly, for today anyway, one correspondent sent us this ruler proudly marked in inches, wooden, one foot in length, that she claims was the same ruler used to rule margins on the official notepaper that was used in the office memorandums of the short-lived engineering works of Hooper & Sons, the firm that made Australia's very first hovercraft. If you stretch the definition of hovercraft almost to breaking point.
1: You know the staff aren't too happy about you doing these impromptu tours around. They feel they've got to clean up all the time.
0: I did notice a few sort of sideways glances but they are mostly an amenable lot. That's why we hired them. Well true. Stephen and I think we now need to dive straight into our stories for today. What have you got for us first up?
1: I'm going to start off with a look into the wonderful world of accountancy and this piece is all about Wayne Snow, born 1938 at passed away sadly in nineteen eighty eight. Wayne Snow was known as the clown prince of Australian accountants. As I said, born in nineteen thirty eight in the small town of Narkel in rural New South Wales. He attended Narkel High School and later studied accounting at Jim Brewster's Greyhound Supplies and Accountancy University. Wayne's main claim to fame, which a little bit of alliteration there, was his unerring ability to get the figures wrong, even when his clients or victims did all the adding up for him. His motto was, close enough is good enough, and he continually bemoaned the fixation with accuracy that seemed to prevail within the taxation department. This desire to not worry too much about the small stuff soon brought him to the attention of Ralph Hurl, the television producer and land surveyor. He saw in Wayne that rare ability to not give a stuff about anything and promptly signed him up to star in his new variety show. In Melbourne Tonight, maybe, sometime anyway, we might not get it up and running until the early hours. Not only did the show have the longest title in television history, it also broke new ground by often not appearing at all. Viewers loved the show for its honesty, zany humour and tax dodging tips that formed the bulk of the production. The guest list read like a roll call of anyone who happened to be passing the studio at any given time. Prime Minister of the day once appeared by accident as he was dragged in from the local pub. Wayne's stocks as an accountant grew from the publicity surrounding the show. As his clientele grew, the national debt grew also. Wayne's name was mentioned in Parliament and it was thought, oddly, that having him within the Treasury would be advantageous as a close eye could be kept on his activities. Wayne joined the Treasury and the resulting recession ravaged the country. Amongst his policy initiatives were less tax, less checking on taxes, less worrying about the detail of tax returns and more relying on the spirit of the thing, less tax for people named Wayne, no tax for people named Wayne, and no tax for people who knew people named Wayne. Suddenly, Wayne became the most popular man in Australian politics. He formed a party called The Party and found himself elected to Parliament. This, like many of Wayne's achievements, was a result of good luck rather than planning. The chickens came home to roost for Wayne in his second year in office. He could supply no receipt for the chickens and indeed could offer no reason why they were in his office. Charges were laid, as were eggs, and all ended when Wayne Snow was hounded out of office on charges of tax evasion. He spent the rest of his life a broken man.
0: Stephen, I think it's safe to say that that is our first accountancy-related story. Oh,
1: yeah, you might be right. I'm sure accountancy is featured somewhere else, but I'll have have to go back through the records, I think. Yeah, it's bound to be a
0: fertile area for
1: apocrypha. Oh, always, yes. (music) Now then, Michael, we're going from accountancy to the wonderful world of medicine.
0: We certainly are, Stephen. And first up today for me is Colin Sangford, the singing surgeon. Colin Sankford was born in Adelaide, South Australia, in 1941. His parents were both active in pre-war amateur dramatics and light opera societies and provided a household full of music for their only child, young Colin. Despite some success as a junior appearing in musicals, his Toad in Toad of Toad Hall was described as the quintessential amphibian in the school magazine Shunt. Colin Sankford resisted the lure of the stage and studied medicine at the University of Adelaide, graduating in 1966. During his studies and residency, Colin Sankford had devoted himself exclusively to pursuing his medical aims. In fact, several acquaintances described him as a recluse. However, his life became far freer once he moved into a practice with Elmer Paganza, a leading orthopaedic surgeon. He discovered modern music in one large hit and was immersed in rock and roll. Immediately, his latent musical and acting skills re-bloomed and he started insisting on early rock and roll being played during operations. His favourites included Chuck Berry and Little Richard, whom he described as having a voice like a bone saw. Soon Colin Sangford began to sing along with recording, then graduated to singing solo, his preferences being Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent, and early Sam Cooke. After a blow to the head during a particularly difficult pre-operation cup of coffee, Colin Sangford underwent a dramatic personality shift. Instead of simply singing rock and roll, he began to assume the identities of the singers he loved. Nurses at St Ringo's Hospital remember him insisting on being addressed as the Big O, and as Roy Orbison, complete with dark sunglasses and a spirited rendition of crying. His buddy Holly phase was short-lived, however, when he was embarrassed while scrubbing up, trying the difficult vocal hiccup manoeuvre. He quickly moved on to the comparatively restrained performances of Gene Pitney and his efforts over half heaven, half heartache while trying to get through the door of the operating theatre too will be long remembered. A brief flirtation with country and western ended when his Johnny Cass show was poorly received in the outpatient area. Shallow and unconvincing wishy-washy, according to Outpatient Weekly. It wasn't long, however, before Colin Sankford launched himself on a full-blown effort to recreate the magic of the man he saw as the one and only king of rock and roll, Neil Sedaka. From his fevered rendition of Calendar Girl in the lift to his laconic, stylish interpretation of oh Carol, Colin Sankford threw himself into becoming the Sultan of Song, the Prince of Pop, the King of Croon. For an hallucinatory two weeks, St Ringo's Hospital was treated to a non-stop collage of Neil Sedaka's greatest hits. Breaking up is hard to do in the maternity ward. Happy birthday, Sweet Sixteen, in the kitchen. Colin Sankford was everywhere. Unfortunately, the strain of attempting to emulate genius was too much. Colin Sankford was found dazed and confused, wandering the wards and humming snatches of R&B favourites and soul riffs. He never recovered and is now appearing twice nightly at a leagues club near you. Mister Dark has got a lot to answer for, really, hasn't he? right, Stephen... Now, no doubt, you have a second offering for us today.
1: Yes, and we're we're going to delve into something uh, a little bit more sinister, a little bit darker. Oh, good. This is all about Gavin Prentice. The name still conjures thoughts of fear and loathing, even fifty years after he was last seen or heard of. Very little is known of Gavin Prentice's early life. Indeed, we do not even know where he was born, when he was born, or the the circumstances of his death, if indeed he's dead. Gavin Prentice was the man who came to be known as the Gold Coast Rabbit Molester. Whilst this podcast does like to celebrate some of the lesser-known Australians, we must recognise that Australia has produced its fair share of villainous individuals, along with those of a more laudable nature. Gavin Prentice clearly has a place in this podcast, if only for the years of terror he forced upon the luckless inhabitants of the Gold Coast. Gavin's reign of terror began on a warm Tuesday morning, when Puce McDuff, the town clerk of the Bunty Bunty Shire Offices, came face to face with Gavin Prentice. He reported the circumstances of this meeting to the Bunty Bunty Tribune, and I quote, It was a shock, I can tell you. I'd been working for the animal shelter. I'd just cleaned out the dogs and was going around to let the cats out of the bag when I saw this man, whom I now know to be Gavin Prentice. He was standing by the rabbit hutch and, well, he had this look in his eye. I can still see it now. You could tell he wasn't playing with a full deck of cards. I said to him, what's your caper, mate? And he just looked at me with those mad eyes. Put me right off my brekkie, I can tell you. End quote. Prentice was charged with the attempted abduction of the Shire Rabbits, but had to be released due to a technicality. The rabbits turned out to be mock rabbits, a common practice of the time. The maniacal Prentice was soon sighted in or near a variety of rabbit enclosures throughout the region, and although he was never again apprehended, several photographs of Prentice were taken as he stalked his unsuspecting victims. What plans he had for the animals is not known and one is loath to speculate in this area. However, in fairness to Mr Prentice, it has to be admitted that in a note he left at the Bunty Bunty Tribune, he claimed he simply liked rabbits and wanted to set them free. Now, the thought of rogue rabbit packs roaming the region in in an alliterative frenzy of feeding, fighting, and other well-documented rabbit habits threw the good people of Bunty Bunty into a rage and they called for the immediate capture and stoning of Gavin Prentice. The notion of someone simply wanting to set the creature free did not wash with the townspeople, and they insisted he was some sort of fetishist, even though most of them, A, didn't know the meaning of the word, and B, were all something of a fetishist themselves. The peace-loving rabbits of the small Gold Coast town began to sleep more easily when the locals herded all of them into one vast super hutch which was patrolled by hungry, mean dogs from the Kill'em Quick Canine School of Control, or the KKKSK. There was rumour of an attempted tampering with the locks, which led to speculation that Prentice was up to his old tricks again, but it was later attributed to Rex, a particularly bright graduate of the KKKSK. In any event, Gavin Prentice was never heard of again in the area, and he simply went missing from all records in the country. In a chilling postscript, it should be mentioned that not a single rabbit survived the great Superhutch slaughter of 1952 and that the trail of blood led directly to Rex's kennel.
0: Stephen, so are we talking villain or, or are we talking just misunderstood?
1: Well, uh, that's a good question. I've, as I was going through the, all the records, what few records they were, I kept, kept thinking maybe he's just a misunderstood villain. Oh, an event. You're going to tell us all about an event,
0: Michael. This is an event from 1929, and it's the wreck of the airship Archibald. The Archibald was Australia's only pre-World War II privately owned and operated Zeppelin. It was constructed in a paddock by Sail, Vic, inventor Rollo Prentice, and was his first experiment in lighter-than-air transport. He had earlier experienced moderate success with his dart biplane, which was made in his backyard, and the eagle monoplane, which was assembled in his dining room and made solely from old jam tins. The Archibald was admittedly an experiment. It carried a crew of three and rarely had the lifting power sufficient for any of them to have eaten lunch before departing. Therefore, crew members were especially selected for their small stature and whippet-like builds. Their uniforms were decidedly skimpy, consisting of shorts and singlets only. Bare feet were part of the kit. Despite these shortcomings, the Archibald was a huge success. Captained and piloted by William Longstreet, it made several runs to and from Melbourne in 1928, where its cigar-like shape became an instant talking point. Zeppelin fever broke out all over Australia. Crowds gathered to watch it pass, ladies fainted, and dogs barked ceaselessly until the Archibald had moved from the area. Letters poured into newspapers demanding an end to aeronautical nonsense. Dozens of solid citizens began to come forward and tell stories of being kidnapped by strange beings in luminous zeppelins and having their memories tampered with. Buoyed by this success and by the lifting power of hydrogen gas, Rollo Prentice remodelled the Archibald, extending its length by some 10 metres. In this form, the Archibald was soon popular with the cognoscenti, and many of Australia's most social were entertained in the tiny but exquisitely appointed ballroom. However, this all came to an end in 1929, when Captain Longstreet attempted to moor the giant airship to the backyard shed. A gaping hole was torn in the side, and the Archibald sagged slowly to the ground, trapping Rollo Prentice and a neighbour's dog, Alex. The Archibald never flew again. Oh, the humanity. Stephen, for your last piece today, I think we're heading into the world of geography. Yes, we
1: have, and we've, we've covered some really interesting places in this podcast, but I'd like to submit that this is one of the strangest. This is all about the McClennan Glacier, situated in the Australian-controlled region on the southern tip of Antarctica. The McLennan Glacier is one of the natural wonders of the Australian-controlled region on the southern tip of Antarctica. It's some um, 700 kilometres long and a estimated 15 metres wide. It does vary occasionally. And it was named after the noted Australian explorer Thomas MacLennan, who discovered it whilst out walking. The MacLennan expedition arrived in Antarctica in the early 1903 and had planned to explore the mineral deposits of the continent. On the night of the 7th of July 1903, a fierce storm hit the expedition's base near Camp Blimey. The storm lasted 15 days and 11 nights due to a mistake made by the expedition's statistician. By day 13, cold, weary and hungry, McLennan decided to see if he could determine just how long the storm would last by climbing up onto nearby Mount Nonetheless. Turning to his fellow expeditioners, McLennan uttered the famous words, I'm going for a walk, but I won't be long, before ducking out of the tent and disappearing into the blizzard conditions outside. Unbeknownst to McLennan, the base camp was located a mere 10 feet from the edge of the glacier that was to bear his name. Thomas McLennan stepped onto the glacier and immediately lost his footing. He spent some time on his hands and knees recovering his breath and decided that the fierce wind seemed to have abated somewhat. After standing, McLennan was astonished to see a group of penguins 10 feet away slide from view very quickly. He began to walk and was soon able to see the summit of Mount Nonetheless. He realised that the blizzard was nearly over when he saw that he had quite a good view of the mountain, but he was concerned that it appeared to be moving eastward at a rate of knots. McLennan was especially startled to see what appeared to be the Ormond Brothers' expedition also proceeding in an easterly direction. He knew that Charles and Andrew Ormond were hard on the heels of his own expedition, but he had no idea they were so close. And then, in a matter of moments, they weren't. McLennan decided he'd need to find out what was going on and he began to walk back in the direction he had come. Suddenly, he was thrown off balance yet again, as if he'd alighted from a moving carriage. And this is precisely what had happened. McLennan had found the fastest glacier in the world. He decided that this phenomenon needed investigating and he stepped back onto the swiftly moving ice, where he stayed for two hours, travelling almost 100 kilometres, overtaking his own expedition's supply ship, which later rescued him from the ice. The McLennan Glacier has been clocked at an impressive average of 56 kilometres an hour. The actual speeds of the ice sheet do vary considerably from around 17 kilometres per hour to an extraordinary 82 kilometres per hour with a good tailwind. The glacier has proved a boon to Antarctic exploration, providing a cheap, easy way to get from a point some 700 kilometres inland to the coast in
0: record time. Stephen. Stephen. Apocryphal Australia first, I'd say, because we've gone to one of Australia's overseas territories.
1: That's right. That's And that, that what I thought added a little bit of added interest. We have gone overseas with people being overseas, but not
0: an actual place. True, true, true. And that's why it deserves one of these. That's apocryphal. There we go.
1: It seems to me, just going by the running sheet here, that we're about to delve back into the art, the art world again, which seems to throw up an awful lot of material.
0: <laughs> it's a fertile area for apocryphal stories, all right. And sometimes I think that people exaggerate some things that happen in the art world. But then again, I'm not sure you can. But I'll dive straight into the story. Tanty Strigel achieved a brief period of near fame in the 1960s when her one-person artism movement achieved a level of public recognition. Combining doggedness with an apparent insensitivity to criticism, Tansy Stridgel was only held back from higher things by her total lack of talent. At times she appeared to acknowledge this, commenting in an interview in a northern suburbs gardening magazine that Technique and colour sense were overrated when it came to landscape painting. But Tansy Strigel was nothing if not a tireless self-promoter. After several attempts, she was expelled from her art course after protesting at the insistence of the instructors on actually completing work for assessment, saying it was a bourgeois attack on her rights. Offered the chance to define exactly which rights, she refused and tried to chain herself to a radiator. Subsequently interviewed in the student newspaper, Tansy Stridgel outlined at length her Manifesto for Complete Artism, promising addenda and corrigenda to come. The interview terminated with a noticeable note of relief from the student journalist and an unsubtle warning from Tansy Stridgel that the world hadn't seen the last of her. Sadly, this was proved to be the case. Over the next few years, from 1966 to 1969, Tansy Strigel embarked on several ambitious one-woman exhibitions. Artism for Everyone was characterised by piles of fabric and paint tubes, all marked with signs, Work in Progress. Tansy Strigel chained herself to a parking meter outside the gallery to publicise the show. Artism is Artism was another show, and this one had no works at all, it was an effort, Tansy Stridgel revealed in an interview in a racing guide for the artistic community, to free the viewer's mind from the imposition of external constraints. The interview was conducted with Tansy Stritchell chained to a lamppost next to her exhibition. After 12 months, Tansy Stritchell declared, Artism is dead, in Modern Dentistry, March 1968. She followed this up with her triumphant, New Artism exhibition at the Ducks and Drakes Gallery, with several installations cleverly designed as furniture bought from local op-shops. This resulted in her highest achievement, an interview in Budget Shopper's Guide to the Arts while chained to a ceiling fan. Flushed with this success, Tansy Strigel abandoned new artism. In quick succession, she founded and rejected neo-artism, post-artism, quasi-artism Pseudo-artism, and Galileo's Trousers' Aunt's Mandolin's Artism at Lunch, none of which, sadly, captured the heady days of new artism. Despite desperately reinventing herself in modes that looked suspiciously like her old self warmed over, Tandy Strigel slipped from the artistic vogue she never held in the first place, vowing to shake the public out of whatever it's in according to the Hereford Breeders' Gazette, 1970, she moved to the country to recharge her spirits. Tragically, Tansy Stridgel was killed in an accident when attempting to chain herself to an electric fence in 1971.
1: I don't, I, I don't know much about art, but I do know what I don't like. OK, it's time to, time to delve into the mailbag and, and see what interesting bits of correspondence we pull out now first up from a mr mick jagger but not the mick jagger he wants to know if we've thought of making a quiz show out of apocryphal australia and i'm not really sure how that would work mick i'll talk to our people what do you think michael
0: Uh, we do need to workshop that one
1: a fair bit yeah might need to develop that one next up George Clooney, but not the George Clooney, writes to ask if we know that Hill's hoist was invented here in Australia and the wine box and Vegemite. And I sometimes think that we need to explain what apocryphal means to our loyal listeners or some of our loyal listeners, listeners at any rate. Now then, I'll delve a little bit deeper this time and see what we come up with. We have an email from Miss Anne Hathaway but not either of the two Anne Hathaways that people may know of. And she writes in to point out she's actually related to Pamela Juice, who featured in episode five, I think it was. Sadly, however, she says she does not have any other interesting aspect to her life at all, which is kind of interesting, I think. Maybe a bit sad. I don't know. And finally from Mr Edmund Hillary, who writes to ask whether we think it's odd that all of today's correspondents share their names with famous people apart from him. And I've got bad news
0: for you, Edmund. Stephen, some people really need to wake up to themselves, don't they?
1: Yeah, absolutely, yes. It is a bit odd,
0: though. True. But in the scale of odd things that apocryphal Australia grapples with, I think it's only, that's only sort of middle of the course. Small oddness. Stephen, I've got a couple of mailbag items to wind up this episode. And first comes from Dorothy Millett from Esterhazy, Queensland. when she writes, Research is all well and good, and I respect the way you two go about it. Very kind, Dorothy. That's a, that's a good start. But I can hear a big but. <laughs> you know? But, there, I told you. But... Have you ever thought about abandoning such a tedious and time-consuming approach? Why don't you just launch into blathering about things with no expertise, evidence, or study? Most other podcasters seem to It could be a fair point, and I but I don't like I don't like to denigrate all the other podcasters out there, only most of them. Plus, it's, it's good to have a point of difference anyway. Yes, we do like to stand out from the crowd. Now, my second item comes from Rollo Fiskins, and he has sent us a recipe for caramel and pear upside down cake, and he swears it never fails. Now, I'm not sure if he's got us mixed up with another podcast, but I'm going to give this recipe a try. It looks truly delicious, Stephen.
1: Fantastic. We ought to share it around the office.
0: Yeah, but we get first dibs (laughs) Absolutely And we've come to the end of episode 6 Of Apocryphal Australia, Stephen And I think it's time to reflect on the glories and wonders We've put in front of our loyal listening audience And I hope that they're eager for episode 7 Which will be coming up real soon And please, don't forget Follow, like, tell your friends All the usual things. And keep an eye on our social media in the usual places. I'm Michael Pryor. Bye, everybody. I'm
1: Stephen Higgins. Goodbye.
0: You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the backblocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders, get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia coming to a listening device near you. So, until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay?